So beginning in Luke 22, this is kind of um, the, so Jesus goes to the cross and we're aware of that. That's definitely the crescendo of why he came. It was his mission to go to the cross. But this message here is like a culmination of his teachings. Um, he has many things he's taught many times in many different places. Um, and here uh, you, you're going to read, Jesus says, like, I fervently desired, you know, to, to, to have this supper with you. But he's done, I mean, you just think of the things that Jesus has done. And John, of course, tells us if all the things that Jesus had ever done were recorded in books at that time, speaking of that time 2,000 years ago, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it all. Um, Jesus was constantly about ministry. He said, I think, I think it was John 8, but he says, all things I see my father doing, I do, right? There's, he, he does, he's, act, he's always actively doing his father's will on the earth. He, he never takes a break. He's, he's about his father's business all the time. That is Jesus, our high, our high priest, our perfect example. So here, um, there's a lot of things have happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Obviously, people want to kill him. Judas is trying to make that possible. And the triumphal entry has occurred. He's been rebuked over and over again by the uh, the high priest, Jesus. Uh, not always the high priest, excuse me, just the religious elite. In verse 1, we'll just we'll read and I'll begin uh, to talk from there. It just says in verse 1 of chapter 22, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Right? This is a big time in the history of Israel. The feast, this is a celebration, right? This is... This is victory. This is this is a reminder of victory and freedom. The, what happened for the Israelites in Egypt was massive. Of course, you guys have most likely read through the Old Testament. I know all the faces here. I'm pretty confident you've all read through the Old Testament uh, probably multiple times. And you know how often the Israelites complained against Moses. How after they came out of the land of Egypt, oh my goodness, it was so much better there. Where we just had, you know, the meat pots and all the herbs and the spices, and you should have just, it would, and that, but you brought us out here to die, and miraculously over and over again, the Lord provides for them. But really, when you when you go through that Exodus account where the Lord says, "I'm going to bring you to Pharaoh," but He's going to be stubborn, right? In the times where Pharaoh himself wasn't hardened, hardening himself, his being stubborn himself, the Lord, in fact, hardened Pharaoh. And over and over again, what you're seeing is God judging the entities, the deities that the Egyptians worshipped. And so this it all had to play out the way it did with the Passover because God was making the point, look, I am the sovereign creator judge of all the earth. You hear, you hear Abraham say that in Genesis 18. Like there are men at the time are already aware, like there's one sovereign Lord, and yet you have this man that God says – I've raised you up to make my power known and my glory displayed throughout the earth. The Passover was a massive event because while you have demonic entities, you have fallen angels, no doubt, trying to cause havoc, right? You have the Egyptians who are a massive world empire. They're trying, um, they're, they're trying to usurp the authority of God, and God is using them to show all of the nations, look, I have power over all the gods, right? All, your, all, the, all the deities that you worship, all of the... Um, the idols that you make, I'm I am the sovereign creator. I'm I am that sovereign creator. So, in the in the in the mind of the the Jews, when 
it says the feast of unleavened bread. This is this is a time of celebration. This is a time to remember victory and freedom. And no doubt, Jesus. We're going to read how like there's there's so much typology here, and it's it's not that Jesus is redefining it, but he's he's giving it its ultimate meaning. We're going to read through that Last Supper account where he's saying this finds its fulfillment and the work that I'm doing here amongst you and I've longed to do. The fact that God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, says that he's longing to make these things known to us, right? That the infinite, eternal God who took off his, he laid his glory down and took on flesh, and yet he says, here I am, and, and I've, I've just, I've longed so long for this moment. I hope that's humbling because they're thinking, you know, military political power or they're thinking you know economic success and no doubt that's what eventually came to um, the Jews after the exodus after a lot of trouble right but so the feast of unleavened bread the the, uh, the reminder of what God did in Egypt judging the deities of the Egyptians and then ultimately uh, the final plague being the Passover the angel of death passing through the camp and then the doors marked with the blood of the lamb. Guys, there's so much type or typology here. I know you know it, right? Uh, he passing over them. And remember, they're supposed to remember these things with the unleavened bread and with the bitter herb because the unleavened bread, they, they had to flee in haste, right? The, the bread didn't have time to leaven, so they left without their bread ever rising. And also the bitter herb is to remind them of the bondage their fathers suffered in Egypt. Like, But yet there's victory. And then, of course, there's, it's funny because you, you read the encounters of the religious leaders with Jesus. Like, how can you say this of us? We're Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage. And, and then I'm like thinking like, what? Like, do you guys read the Old Testament? But Jesus is constantly asking them that. Like, do you even know what the word says? Um, it was God over and over again that delivers them from bondage. And here we're going to see the greatest deliverance and Jesus really longing to give special application to that. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And him, obviously, Jesus. It's so, guys, it's so ironic, right, that the religious elite who claim to stand in that place ministering to the people on behalf of God, making God's will known to the people, want to kill the Prince of Life, right? They, they, they want to put him to death. And it's, we have to recognize how much of a spiritual battle this is, right? It's Ephesians 6 that says we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And that becomes so cliche sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, that's the thing that I've memorized. And, you know, I, I say it when I, when I want to sound spiritual. But the truth is we don't, right? I, I was watching. I mean, have you guys read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? And the devil goes on and on talking to his um, little, uh, you know, his his buck private demon. He's just saying like, it's a good thing. Those Christians don't realize how well prayer actually works. Right. And how, how much reading the Bible is actually going to sanctify them because the truth is prayer and reading the word is what sanctifies us. And it act it actually accomplishes God's will in our life. That's when Jesus is saying, abide in me and you'll produce fruit. Right. You're not, I mean, trees don't sit there thinking about how hard they're going to work to bear fruit. Like, you know, giving themselves hernias because they're flexing so hard. They just, they're just plugged into the ground. They just abide. They, they draw the nutrients up from being, from, you know, being planted. 
and that's the same way we're called to be planted in Christ, being in his word and being in prayer. And sometimes we just get so bogged down by these things that we think we have to do and we forget we forget the elementary things, the, the first things. It's Jesus, our first love, who's made known to us through the scripture and then conforming our life, our will, our heart to him by asking God in prayer to, to this heart that he's made new to mold it according to his desires, to fashion it, right? The way that God said that he would do when he, he uses that example for Jeremiah in the Old Testament with the potter and the clay and, and how he can, he can do those things. When the thing gets marred, he can remake it into something beautiful. So with the chief priests and the scribes, um, it's, not, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's, it's, liter- it's just a lack of humility. It truly is. Because Nicodemus, right? Um, teacher, it's John 3. We know you're sent from God because no one can do these signs among us unless God is with him. And then Jesus, he gets right to the heart of the issue, right? You got to be born again. It's, it's not simply mental assent, right? And that's a lot of, so you guys, we should understand that when we say faith, it's that loyal, undying trust in our Savior, right? That, that humble faith that comes before the Savior and says, I trust that you're good, and I know I've fallen short of your glory or perfection. And God, in faith, because of our faith and the work he's done, and the fact that we've fallen short, that confession of falling short, he remakes us. He remolds us. He gives us a new heart. He, he makes us able to then bear fruit to him. But um, you will hear people, and it's really because of, okay, there are, there are other sects within Christianity that want to say, well, Protestants simply believe in mental assent, right? Because they'll equate the word faith with just mental assent, right? And we don't believe in any any type of works. And just so we're clear, works are not necessary for salvation, but works cannot be divorced from salvation. Works are distinct in justification, but they're not separate. When you're justified before God, he gives you a new heart, a new spirit, and he, and he it's his, uh, it, Philippians 2.13, it's God, God wills to both work and do in you according to his good pleasure. Those things can't be divorced. If you're saved, God will produce fruit through you. And so we have to, and I know that we we recognize that, but sometimes people will falsely accuse Protestants of believing, oh, all you got to do is mentally assent to the fact that Jesus is Lord and he died for you and you're saved. And you don't, you believe that you can go on living however you want for the rest of your life. And then we would all confidently say, no, that person's not actually in fact saved because they haven't been given a new heart from God because of humble faith. Humble faith receives a new heart from God and it's born from above. God, we are, we are masterpiece. We're Christ's masterpiece set apart for good works that we might walk in them. Those things will be accomplished by God. But all that to say, I'm simply trying to say the Jews recognized something miraculous was happening in Jesus's life. And he was sent from God. Nicodemus shows up. He's the teacher of all Israel, and he's basically speaking on behalf of the religious elite. Look, we all know God's with you. And Jesus is like, hey, here's the thing. Humble faith is the thing that's going to save a man. You've got to be born again. You've got to allow God to give you a new heart. I say allow, right? God is sovereign, but still it's, it's humbly coming before God. These men, you, you hear the same thing in Acts. Acts 4, when... Um, 
the uh, the religious leader talking about the miracle that Peter and John perform, right? Like we we know this miracles this miracles happening. None of us can deny it. So let's just bring these. Guys, I'm paraphrasing. Let's bring these guys in here and beat them. Tell them to shut up. It's like oh my goodness. Here, here again, this is why we can't take Ephesians six cliche. We wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, the rulers of, of darkness and in, in high places. Right. This is why we have to be in the Word and pray. We have to be humble before God when He's when He makes something known to us. Right, like Ephesians five, where it calls us to that unity and speaking and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and and blessing one another with the Word of God, and then it tells tells us to submit to one another, um, and then and then of course it gets into Wives submitting to husbands and then husbands treating their wives like Christ treats the church, loves the church, right? And washing her in the water of the word that he might present her spotless before God. And, and Paul's saying the same thing about the Corinthians. I want to present you like a chaste virgin before God on judgment day. You think of the Corinthians like, oh my goodness. And the fact that Paul's saying, look, I want you to look like a spotless virgin before God. And that happens through the word of God in prayer. That happens by committing yourself to God's word and allowing him to remake you. And then, of course, praying not only for that victory in your life, but for the victory in other people's lives and for, for in, in our community. Right. I'm driving up by I'm driving up Beechland Road this morning um, and I pass the LDS church. Right. Like in a lot of us think, oh, my goodness. And yes, their doctrines are crazy. They're, they're weird, guys. They really, truly are. And a lot of them don't even realize what they are until they get sent out on their two-year mission. And they show up to someone's door, usually a Protestant's, right? And they say, you guys believe this. And they're all like, no. And then they go back to their host family, and they're like, we were accused of this. And they're like, well, you know, so Joseph Smith said, and, and Brigham Young kind of expounded on. And they're all like, oh. And then they find out, wow, this is weird, but I'm committed. I'm signed up. I've given the money. I'm on the mission, right? All that to say, it's weird, but these people are won over by being in the word, knowing your word, and being in prayer. Being ready by being in the word and being in prayer. And don't, and of course, we can't make it selfish, right? Because this is always this is a communal religion. This faith of ours is meant to be spent on other people. Jesus gives to us so that we could flow out, right? We're, we're Will would, would he were a conduit? I remember Will saying that so many. Times. We're a conduit to bless other people, and therefore we we speak the word to other people. We bless the word with other people. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We we speak the word over our wives, right? And then wives respect and love their husbands, and and that helps them in the ministry that the husband then has to the family. That's part of what's going on here in verse two. There's no reverence for the word of God. There's no humility, right? If there's anything the Jews can learn from the Old Testament, it's that the Jews didn't learn from anything in the Old Testament. And that ought to be how they respond to an obvious, evident work of God. But yet, that isn't what happens. Let that not be said about us, right? There's so many arguments that we consider. And I, guys, you know I love arguments, not getting in arguments. I love reasons, def reason defenses for the faith. I spend time talking to college kids about it all the time. But it doesn't matter how many reasons you can give a, ch a child, a, a kid, a young adult for believing in Jesus. Literally part of a conversation 
with a, a student at UMO, and um, he got with, and then he got with Travis one on one, Travis Pelletier, who heads up the group meeting on Thursdays uh, this past week, and he's just telling him like, look. The arguments for Christianity are really convincing. I just don't think I'm ready to make Christ my Lord because there's a lot of things I want to do with my life. Guys, for real, that's what we're in. It's serious. People don't recognize that sin is bondage. They're enslaved to sin. There's freedom in Jesus. The Son sets us free. There's, when you're set free from sin, you are free indeed. When you are at the side, when you're separated to Jesus, separated to the gospel, and these people, they're missing it. So why? They, they're trying to kill him. It's obvious something's going on with Jesus. And they don't, they don't kill him right outright because they're scared of the people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, you guys remember earlier in the gospel, uh, they're, they're questioning Jesus, and Jesus says, I'll answer you if you tell me. John's ministry, who was it from? Was it from man or from God? And they're like, well, if we answer it's from God, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from man, the people want to kill us because they thought he was a prophet. So we'll just keep our mouth shut and walk away. They, they don't want to own the facts, right? It's obvious. I mean, John showed up and he was incredibly pious, right? He was he was sold out for God for the mission he was sent on, and he pointed everyone to Jesus. He said, I, did, I wouldn't even have known it was Jesus because there was no comeliness about him that we might desire him. I wouldn't even have known it was Jesus except the Spirit of God descended from heaven and, and a bodily form as a dove, and it rested upon him. And God ripped the heavens open and said, Behold, my loved Son, in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. Right? And so we probably should listen to him. So anyway, they feared the people. Verse three, this is, we're going to see how uh, working with that um, in John 12, there's a banquet at Simon's house and Jesus is there and he's anointed with the oil. Judas protests because he insists this could be sold and uh, it could, the money could be used to feed the poor. And then of course, John's like, not that he actually cared about feeding the poor, but what we learned is that he was stealing money from the treasury. And when Jesus says, look, you know, you're the poor you'll have with you always, but you won't always have uh, me with you. What this woman's done will be preached to all generations. And of course, we have it in the word of God. So it's, it's never going to disappear. Jesus's words did, in fact, come true. But at that moment, that's when Judas, it, John tells us Judas then was like, I'm going to, that's it. I'm going to betray Jesus. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. You guys know that. But that it was at that, that, that point that he was he started, he began, he, he got bitter, he didn't like being rebuked by Jesus, he was trying to seem spiritual. So what does he do? I mean, because we've probably all been rebuked at some point in our walk. Um, I am hopefully not still known for being a hothead, but when I first came into this church 11 years ago, I was a hothead. And there was a lot of things I said, and Will would be like, dude, I, he'd just give me that look. If you know Will, you know what look I'm talking about. Right. Anyway, and I, I just got rebuked by the look. But um, what it led to, what, there was embarrassment from it. And but it led to, by the grace of God, it led to humility. Like, I really do believe this Christian thing. I really do believe Jesus is my savior. And I want to be a better representative for Jesus. And it led to repentance by God's grace. Right. And Judas, not so. Anyway, 
They're using Judas, says in verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them, betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Right, of course, this is all according to God's plan. But Judas betrays the prince of life for the, the cost of a slave. You see in the Old Testament where uh, Jacob sends Joseph out to see to see what his brothers are up to, and they're taking care of the flocks, and he gets out there. Here comes God's God's. Here comes Dad's favorite kid. You know, we should we should kill him. And then Reuben, right, says, uh, no, it wasn't Reuben. Reuben insists that they hide him in a cistern, um, because Reuben actually wants to deliver him back to Dad. And I'm, I mean Jacob. You guys know what I mean. And um, I can't remember who it was, but one of them. One of them, in, when the Midianites came by, the Ishmaelite traders, it's like, well, we should sell them because what are we going to gain if we just kill them, right? So what if they got 20 pieces of silver for them. So what ends up happening through all of that is Joseph's dreams come true. The very things that made them so angry that they were going to kill the kid. So they sell him into slavery. And then years later, they're literally, they're groveling at his feet. They're, they're begging for, for, I mean, because Joseph is testing them. But so this, all I'm saying is this isn't outside of the sovereignty of God. We have to recognize all these things are working together. And you guys know that I'm just reminding us, like there are things in life where, because the thing is Judas, the, the character of Judas should break our heart, right? It, it should be something that causes us grief, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't surprise us. These people are going to, they're going to rise up all the time from amongst what looks like a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying we should be pessimistic and think, you know, well, they got to be saved for four years before I'm even going to believe they're not a Judas. I'm not saying we function in that sense. But guys, there's there's men, and I'm sure women too, but I'm thinking of one, one man specifically. Um, I'll mention him by name. His name is Brandon Robertson. And he was raised um, as a Christian, and he, he made professions of faith that he loved Jesus, and he loved the biblical Jesus, and uh, he, he found that he had, um, he had homosexual desires, and he, he confessed that at that point in time, he, he decided, uh, I should rephrase it, not that he's going to watch this and then call me out on it, but he, he said that he... Um, tried to see if the scriptures somehow gave room for homosexuality, right? And he he confesses afterward, after he became like the go-to guy to defend homosexuality as being an acceptable practice in the New Testament, according to the New Testament. He said, yeah, I was struggling with homosexual tendencies the entire time. So it's kind of like he's kind of admitting like, this is why I went into this. But this guy, Brandon Robertson, I mean, he, he, he has a very large TikTok and I don't, that's like a short glib video that it's less than 60 seconds or something like that, maybe less than 30. I'm not sure how long they are, how short they have to be. But he's at the point now where he's making these things that they go viral or he's telling people that um, this is incredibly, this is going to sound incredibly racy, but he's telling people that porn is actually a beautiful art form and that he has friends inside, inside of the adult 
entertainment industry. This guy is a pastor, right? He, he's got a, a master's in theology. He's, he's completely off the rails, right? And, but this, this stuff is terrifying, and it should grieve us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Judas betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Come on. Like, this stuff isn't that surprising. This is unfortunately humanity. This is mankind. And Brandon goes to great lengths to try and justify his views. I literally heard him. This is going to sound so ridiculous, guys. What is it? John 11, where Judas is standing outside of the tomb. Judas, excuse me. Jesus is standing outside of the tomb, and he says to um, Lazarus, come out or come forth. Brandon Robertson is saying, he's saying, come out, Lazarus. Let everyone see your true colors. You know, come out of the closet, right? Oh my goodness, guys. But people are listening to him. So all I'm saying, like this stuff, it's so, it's so obvious to those who are born again, are in the word, are humble before God in prayer. This man is a wolf in sheep's clothing, but millions of people follow him. And again, you're not, we're not going to win this battle through just engaging. I mean, because here's the thing. Brandon's probably smarter than I am, and he's no doubt more educated. But this, we got to win this battle in prayer. We got to win this battle by knowing the word and having God's spirit, being filled with God's spirit. So Judas betraying Jesus isn't outside of God's, um, he, he's got a, a plan through this. But at the same time, we have to recognize this is still an atrocity. The, the fact that this ever happened, right? So they were glad, verse 5, they agreed to give him money and he promised and sought opportunity to betray them, betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Verse 7, then the day of unleavened bread came. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters, and you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. I love the sigh of agreement. Yes. Amen. Uh, Isaiah 41.9, Peter uh, repeats it in his epistle in the New Testament. The, uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus says, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no, no means pass away. I'm not saying Jesus is, okay, I am. Okay, so Jesus literally, he tells them, this is what's up. This is what's going to happen. And what do you read in verse 13? And they found it just as he has said to them, right? Trust Jesus. I mean, if there's anything from the message that you take, it's just trust Jesus. When he says something, yes and amen. He, he said assuredly, assuredly, or truly, truly. I said amen, amen. In the Old Testament, it says God speaks truly. So when Jesus is saying amen, amen, right, or truly, truly, listen up. This man speaks with such authority. Here Jesus is. He's saying, I speak the very words of God, right? It's not that he's screaming at people. Like no one's ever talked like that before. no. People have probably been screaming at people for, but then when this, when this Jewish rabbi shows up, this Jewish carpenter, Jesus, and he's saying, amen, amen, before he's making these, 
these proclamations, people are listening like, wow, this guy speaks with such authority. And yet, everything Jesus says happens just as he says it. And that's, that's a bless. It's a, it's the um, encouragement we can take. But what I love about that, I mean, so there's two, I'm open to two interpretations about what's going on here. I kind of, I think they both lead to the same thing. I think when I first read this passage, I see Jesus just knowing. He just knows the guy's going to be there. Um, you're going to see the guy carrying the pitcher of water. I'll try and get into that. Um, but it says, just back to verse 7, when the day of unleavened bread came and the Passover must be killed, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover that we, that we may eat. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he tells them, look, there's a place that's going to be provided. And when they go and they find it, just as he said, I think there's, there's two, I don't want to dis- destroy anyone's view of what's happening here. Because it could be that Jesus just knew. You're going to see this guy carrying a pitcher of water. And yes, that's usually the female task in the society. So it's going to stand out for you. When you see him approach him, say, where's the place we're going to prepare Passover? He's going to bring you to this place. And there's going to be a furnished upper room there, prepare Passover. I, When I first came into the faith, I read that. And I was like, look, Jesus just knows. And I'm not saying he didn't. But I'm also saying that there might be something here where Jesus prearrange this um, so that because what you read right on uh, like right before we're in this passage is they sought opportunity to betray him and I think Jesus is what regardless of whether Jesus used um, divine foreknowledge right his 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 omniscience in this sense to know how, how what the setting was going to be like or whether or not he prepared it beforehand he's definitely avoiding the crowd okay because Jesus knows that he's people are trying to kill him. And I think this is a good point. Like we we ought to always be willing to suffer for God and for the name of Jesus, but that doesn't mean that when someone throws a bottle at us, we don't dodge it, right? When if if you're going out with the word of God on your lips pre- uh, preaching the message of Jesus Christ, yes, there's going to be you're going to suffer persecution for that, but that doesn't mean you don't have to remove yourself from physical harm. And I think you definitely see that with Jesus because in seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus to the religious community, the religious elite, um, the best time would be, I mean, I, I imagine a really good time would be at the Passover, right? Because all the, all the families are together. They're going through this tradition, this ritual. And then here Jesus would be with his close, intimate followers. And, and we read about him being like that. But because Jesus kept it under wraps where this was going to happen, uh, the the Roman guard wasn't able to break in at the meeting, at the meal. No doubt Judas didn't know where this was going to happen. Neither did did, um, Peter and John. So in sending them away, making this in a secluded place, Jesus is – I mean you you can just hear it. You can make – you can imagine Jesus saying like, I need you guys to hear this sermon. Like, again, I'm, I'm dying. He says, I, I've, I've longed, right, with fervent desire. I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows he's, he's not avoiding the suffering. He's just putting it off for a time because he wants to break this bread with them. He wants to explain to them this new covenant, not only uh, what he's doing, the meaning behind it, 
but like how much power, right? Redefining the elements that symbolize the deliverance from Egypt, right? The, the, uh, the judgment on all of the Egyptian deities. He's, he's, he's taking that and he's saying, look, all that power is now available to you in the new covenant made by my blood. And it gives you freedom, freedom, not, not just from slavery and bondage in Egypt, but this, this Jeremiah 31 freedom, right? This Ezekiel 36 freedom, talking about the new covenant that God's going to make. He's going to give them a new heart, right? It's going it's to remove the heart of stone. He's going to write, write his law on their, on their mind and on their heart. He's going to make them desire to want to do God's will. He, no one's going to have to teach their son and their neighbor know God because everyone's going to know God from the least of them to the greatest. All of them who are part of this covenant are going to be so spiritually enlivened by their relationship with God through this new covenant that Jesus is making in his blood that Jesus is saying, like, listen, I, I, I've so desired to just sit down and explain to you what I'm, I'm now going to do on your behalf, this new covenant. So, um, but then again, let's read. We'll continue because it is, it's cool uh, how he makes it obvious where he wants them to go. In verse 9, they say to him, where do you want us to prepare? And Jesus said, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house, which he enters. So again, just that's it's slightly different. It's not completely impossible, but it's very uncommon to see the men going to fetch the water. So when they see a man with a water jar, they're going to know, oh, okay, Jesus said we'd see that just as he said. So they're going to follow him. You'll say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. And that's what they did. They knew what Passover was about. So they had the elements ready, right? They had the unleavened bread. They had the, uh, the bitter herb, right? They had these elements, and then Jesus is going to reinstitute them. So they went and found it just as he had said, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14 when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, and of course, it, it keeps saying he. We all know they're talking about Jesus. Luke is. With fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, in passing, just mentioning the suffering. Because right now his heart's desire is set on ministering to these, to these 12, including Judas, right? His heart's desire is set on ministering to these men. And he mentions his Passover and suffering, his suffering in passing, excuse me. He mentions his suffering in passing because he wants them to know, listen, I, have, I still have something to, to give you. I still, still have something to minister to you before I go through this. Verse 16, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said this, and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So um, he's taking the cup and he gives thanks, right? And it's, uh, there are, there is a, a thing inside of Christianity that you often hear, right? I'm not saying it's wrong, but this idea of giving thanks, of blessing the meal, um, you'll hear people in Christianity often when they pray, Lord, thank you for this food. Please bless it to our bodies. And more so in this, in this community, in this culture, when, when someone would bless a meal or give thanks for a meal, 
they would actually bless the one who gave it to them. Right? We, read in, we read in Scripture that we are to bless God. A, uh, a standard Jewish prayer would be like, a bless are you, O Lord God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Right? They would say those things before they would partake in a meal because they were recognizing the one who already gave it to them. Um, again, if, if you say, please bless it to our body, I'm not saying that's sacrilegious or unbiblical. You just more so in the culture, it's it's more of a the the blessing is focused on blessing God, the thankfulness, the the attitude of our heart toward the one who's who has prepared it, right? And his faithfulness. So him saying he took the cup and he gave thanks. You can imagine Jesus saying to the Father, Oh Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you know, King of the world, thank you for your provision. Right, you you provide all things, and then he says to them, "Take and divide among yourselves. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." So, um, when when so the <laughs> this is one of those points. I'm not even sure if I want to get into it. I know a lot of people have said, like, "Listen, uh, there is a there is a massive problem with alcohol in this culture, with drinking, with drunkenness. Therefore." Uh, a really good policy is simply abstinence until Jesus hands you the cup, right? You'll get to drink that cup with God um, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we can all say praise God for that. And we won't lose our bearings. We won't become intoxicated. It will be a perfect cup of wine handed to us from the Son of God. Um, but then other people want to debate, well, when has the kingdom of God come? Because Jesus has said the kingdom of God is already amongst you, right? Not that Jesus is, is ruling from a political throne here on earth but more so that the kingdom of God um, is it, – it unites the believers in a way, but not in the fact that Jesus is ruling physically yet, more so that Jesus is ruling individually in us, in our, in our hearts, and in our minds. But the argument is, well, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he spent 40 days with his disciples, and he broke bread, and he drank wine. And he was pr to prove to them that he was alive. He had a physical body. So it's like, well, anyway, don't get too hung up on it. I thought maybe I should bring it up to confuse you guys because I don't know the answer. But drunkenness, we know, is a sin. So um, we should not be getting drunk. Anyway, he, he did say uh, to take it and divide it amongst themselves. And he's going to, he's going to reinstitute uh, to us what this, what this means. He says, because uh, remember, this was a reminder of this was something that they went through every year at the Passover. They, they shared this bread together. And in verse 19, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here, where he's taking the unleavened bread, right? And leaven often a picture of sin in the scripture. The, there's no sin in Christ's body, right? The leaven, he, he, we, we have a reason, obviously. There's more of a, we, we see the reason for the breaking of the bread because Jesus Christ's bo uh, body was broken on the cross for us and his blood was shed. But uh, he takes it again. He's giving thanks and he says, this is my body. And then again, here comes another debate. Um, just so we're aware, the, the Jewish culture that was being written to did not have the doctrine of transubstantiation in mind at all when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, right? Transubstantiation 
is a Roman Catholic doctrine that and there's different there's different uh, ways that it's but essentially it's just that when the priest blesses the bread and the cup it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus but here there's so many issues with that one being that Jesus was most likely speaking in Aramaic and there is no I mean because you you get you know um, there's this debate over what what the word is means is so it when Jesus says it is my body it must be his body well and Jesus was most likely speaking Aramaic and yes um, I believe there's very good evidence that Jesus spoke Greek because he often quoted the Septuagint also but in speaking Aramaic um, there there was no word for the word is that it would it would be literally rendered this is written in Greek but when Jesus said it was more uh, almost certainly this my body right he wasn't saying this is my body there's a few other things there was no pushback from the disciples present you know they didn't say i mean because it's a sin in judaism to eat human flesh and drink human blood there was no pushback from the jews that were present saying lord right and you even have uh Peter in Acts 10 saying, but no, Lord, not, not so. I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, if he'd literally eaten the body and blood of Jesus Christ, then he would have eaten something unclean, right? And, and the Lord doesn't rebuke him for that. He just says, don't call unclean the thing that I've made clean. He doesn't say, you're a liar, Peter. You ate my body back there, right? So all that to say, I know this is probably not something that we struggle with, most of us, but when Jesus is saying, this is my body, you would expect some kind of pushback if they thought he meant literally. Because what he's doing is he's taking a whole bunch of symbolism and he's, re he's, he's reteaching them certain things through the symbolism that's already evident, right? The, 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 um, the Lord's, excuse me, the Passover supper is all about symbolism with, with, the, with the bread and with the bitter herb and um, the Passover blood. So likewise, he took the cup after supper said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And again, that, that hearkening back to those promises in the Old Testament about the new covenant. He's not introducing something, that, something that's foreign to them. This was something they were anticipating. And he's saying, this is my blood. In the Old Testament, you read about Moses going up on the mountain, receiving the tablets. He comes down and basically he says, Obey and you're blessed, disobey and you're cursed, right? That's, that's the covenant. Keep the law and the Lord will bless you. And they say, everything you've commanded, we will do. And he takes the blood, uh, you read in Exodus 24, he literally, of the, of the covenant, he splashes it on the people, which is kind of weird, right? It's definitely something we wouldn't do in this culture, but it was, it was something that they um, would do then. You know, they would divide a, an animal and the blood of the animal would symbolize a covenantal contract that you'd make between people. And... In the same way, Moses made that covenant, that promise, that uh, that contractual agreement with the Israelites with the blood of the covenant. And here Jesus is, he's going to, this is the new covenant, right? And it's not, you don't receive blessings by doing and obeying. Uh, well, you do in some sense, but you don't receive the life that God promises by doing and obeying. You receive this new covenant by, by grace, through faith, right? You receive it. It's a free gift, and the grace will transform your lives. And then yielding to the new heart, the desire, the will of God in your life, it will produce blessings. But it's not, it's not, um, it's not the same contractual agreement as the old covenant. 
the Old Testament. And here Jesus is saying, it's my blood that's going to be shed, and it's going to institute this new covenant. And he moves quickly to, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He says in, in Mark, he says, it would have been better if that man was never even born. He says out of Judas. You think of, you know, there's a couple things I think this passage does. It definitely, I think in my mind, rids of this idea of universalism. And, and when I say universalism, it's the idea that everyone gets saved, right? Eventually. Um, and, and thinking about this, this was years ago when this passage really struck me. I was thinking in my head, like, if universalism is true, how, how much time would Judas have to suffer in hell before he would be saved that it wouldn't actually be worth it, right? Like, it would be better if he just – I know that's a, a weird question, but I'm thinking in my head, like, is a billion years too long to suffer separate from God's presence to then for it to be worth it to eventually be saved? And when that thought struck me, like, oh my gosh, a billion years. Can you think of how overwhelming the concept is? Well, you know, you checked in, but at least your billion-year clock is counting down. Like, the thought of – guys, I, this is just a, a thought experiment – but the truth is, hell is an eternal judgment, right? The thought of a billion years overwhelming you should make you fall on your face and pray for your lost loved ones, right? And I'm not saying you don't already do it, but when that thought struck me, like a billion years isn't even a percentage of eternity, of an eternal judgment, like how much more should we not be involved in trivial things? But he's saying to in this in this act of of grace and mercy, Jesus is saying, "But behold," and I say that because he's he's hearkening back to a type in the Old Testament where uh, David writes about his betrayer, right? The the one whom I've even shared bread with. He's Psalm forty one nine. My uh, a close friend has has betrayed me. He's lifted his hand against me. Even even someone I've shared bread with. And Jesus using that passage, uh, you see it more directly alluded to in um, other gospel accounts. But in that moment, right, Jesus is, is still is saying to Judas, look, I understand what you're doing, right? And there's this, there's this idea that some people say, well, maybe Judas was just helping Jesus along. I say something, um, Jesus no doubt knew the ultimate end of, of Judas and the decision. Sorry, I keep burping. Knew the decisions he was going to make. But I, I confidently believe that there was room for Judas to repent after he betrayed Jesus if he did it humbly and sincerely. We know, we know that Judas did not because of these words that Jesus speaks. But listen, I, I, I believe the grace of God even extends to a person like, like Judas. He's saying, the Son of Man goes, that is, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And then in verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of it, which of them it was who would do this thing. And I think that's kind of put there, guys, because even though we know it was Judas who did it, it should make you make you really think about your own um, just how fragile you are, right? How, how quick, how much we can be on fire 
We can be in God's word. We can be humble, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then get get boastful, get you know proud of ourselves. We can we can do things and then fall. We can uh, we can disown God. Hopefully, we don't do it in the most important areas. But when we do it in front of people that we love, who are the ones that we're most common with, that's incredibly important, right? Like that's an area where we really should desire to be a minister to those people. And these these. 12, of course, Judas knowing it was him, but these 12 questioning amongst themselves should be, a, should be a reality check. We can all do that. We can all fall like that. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit more. Verse 24, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he was the greatest among you. Let him be no let let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. We have a even more detailed picture about what's going on here in John 13, where Jesus rises up from the table, he takes off his outer garment, he he girds himself around the waist, and he goes around the table cleaning everyone's feet, right? And he's, of course, we also know here that he's telling them, look, these elements that you have for thousands of years identified has been a symbol of the power that God used to deliver the nation of Israel, millions of people from the, a, a world-leading power and completely destroying the army in the Red Sea. Those elements are now afforded to you in the sacrifice. I'm going to die for you in your place. And it's, it also it, it symbolizes the freedom you have from sin and bondage in me, being connected to me, relating to me properly, humbly, right? And now, and at the same time, simultaneously, he's washing their feet, right? The king of glory, the one who stretches out the heavens with the span of his hand, he's wiping the dirt off their feet. As he moves around the table, that bowl of water he started with just gets dirtier and dirtier. And yet at the end, they all end up clean. And he says to them, you're, you've made clean, you're made clean by the words that I've spoken to you, right? When they believed in the things that he said, they were, they were clean. They were made pure. They were made holy by God's grace. But he's saying, but yet you still need your feet washed. Again, keep coming back to Jesus. Don't depart from Jesus. And every time you do, what do you end up doing? You end up acting superior to your king, right? And then what's that gonna, how's that going to translate into your relationships with other people? You're going to act as a, benefa- a benefactor. You're going to lord over them. That's typically, that's what we do as humans, right? Even if it's like, no, no, that's not my attitude. Like You'll see people who are incredibly um, meek in the way or they're very low-tempered, very quiet. They'll, they'll get very passive-aggressive, right? And you don't, you don't see that from our, our king and savior. He, he has a true desire to minister to people and not be um, sarcastic, especially his own sheep. And here he's saying, listen. Right, they say of of Jesus of the um, apostles' teachings in Jerusalem, they flip the whole world upside down. These these eleven guys with the teachings in Jerusalem, they've just flipped everything on its head. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's the way the kingdom of God is. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be the least. If you want to be first, you have to be last. Yeah, I was watching my kids the other day. Their uh, their cousin came over, and they're playing hide and seek or tag or something. And 
for whatever reason, whenever he comes over, they they just do this thing. They do the whole not it, not it, not it, not it. And I like literally, I'm like, guys, like when you guys get together, the only game you play is not it. Because you can never get past the fact, like, who touched their nose first? I said, how about we do this like Jesus, and you just offer yourself up and be the first one who is it? And then, as the example, you can all have fun, and the next person can go, right? And I'm not even asking you to hang on a cross. I'm just asking you to tag your cousin. So anyway, um, yes, I very, very short notice in preparing the sermon. I hope it blessed you in some way. I hope we can all remember, right, this, this battle isn't fought in the flesh. It's fought in the spirit. It's won in the spirit. We fight against the flesh. We got to remain humble. We got we to gotta be the Mary, right? We got to be at Jesus' feet. We have, to, um, we have to make him our great reward. And when he is not, ask, Lord, help me prioritize. Make Get my priorities straight. I know you're sufficient. I know that. I'm really struggling to connect that from my, my head to my heart. Okay? Because Jesus, is, he, never, he didn't stop ministering. Right? He's not up there on that throne completely separate from us. He said, when you should rejoice. When I go to the Father, everything you ask in my name, I'll hear it and I'll do it. He's still active. He's still our servant king. He's still our high priest. He's still, he still desires to work in your life, and we ought to come to him. But we, we now we get to come boldly because we're in Christ. We have those. You read through Ephesians. You read how many times uh, Paul writes in him, in him, through him, because of him, for his sake. And it's like you have everything in Jesus. Don't, don't rip yourself off by believing the, wor- the world's words because they desire, they will pollute you. And there's no freedom in sin. It's only bondage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for again, Jesus' work. We thank you for what has been afforded to us through the sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that even in his dying moments before he's uh, going to be betrayed, Lord, that he still desires to minister to us. Lord, help us recognize the life that is available if we would lay down our own will, if we would live to serve our families, to serve this body. Lord, you said, who is, who is my mother and my brothers? But those who hear the word of God and do it, hear the word of God and keep it. Lord, this is as close as any family we will ever get, and we will get to sit together around your throne rejoicing for eternity. Help that become a reality, not just in our head, but in our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.